This is an economy and has a tremendous amount of pain. Unemployment is often the last thing that recovers. Uh, so we're seeing hope and possibility, most importantly, uh, but we're not seeing the recovery yet. What you do, raise the roof. Everybody wants you to. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hana Jaffe-Walt. Today is Monday, August 10th. That was Newark Mayor Cory Booker. He was speaking on Meet the Press this weekend. You heard him at the top of the podcast. And on today's podcast, we are going to learn where we think the phrase raise the roof comes from. At least one explanation for it. But first, today's Planet Money indicator, Adam. One, two, three, 123. That is 123 recommendations. Recommendations of things to change about the Australian healthcare system. So it turns out we are not the only spot on the globe where people are talking lots and lots about the problem of keeping our citizenry healthy and insured. And paying for it. Yes. So in Australia, the government, they put together this commission. They have universal coverage. It's part private, part public. And they asked this commission to come up with a modern long-term plan for its healthcare system. Earlier this summer, it did. And it includes 123 health care reforms. So a few of those recommendations. Dental care for every Australian citizen. Also, the government would fund and manage primary care. There would be improved mental health services and care for indigenous Australians. There's an awful lot of goodies in there. <laughs> so it, it's a little unclear what will happen at the moment with this commission's report. The prime minister, Kevin Rudd, he says he wants six months to think it over. And in the meantime, you know, there's all these numbers coming out every day in the papers about how many billions the reforms will save and how much it will cost to put them in place. Yeah, it sounds a lot like here. It does. It sounds very familiar. Okay, so we're going to uh, post a link on our blog, npr.org slash money, if you feel like reading more healthcare proposals from another place. And you and David are working round the clock on healthcare economics. You're going to be bringing us plenty on it, huh? Yes, I've been dreaming healthcare. But today we're actually going to return to another really interesting topic that we've talked about here, what life was like, really like, before the Industrial Revolution. So we're going to have part two of our conversation with Professor Philip Dayleader. He's the chair of history at the College of William and Mary. And a few weeks ago, Adam, you and Alex, you played out this whole little version of life in the Middle Ages where you, of course, got to be the knight. Mm -hmm. And Alex got to be the peasant. We learned that knights weren't exactly the gallant heroes we thought they were. Yeah, it turns out knights were a lot more like members of the Sopranos. We made life more difficult for the peasants. We tried to take all their money and we made them work on our land. Uh, but in the sense of preventing progress, we might not have been as bad as the guilds. Right. So I thought this was really interesting. So in that same conversation with Day Leader, you talked about how the guilds, which organize certain job groups like bakers or butchers or shoemakers, they existed to eliminate competition, which I was surprised about. They squashed any innovation people tried to come up with, and they made everyone in the same given position work for the same number of hours and charge the same prices. Yeah, pre, pre-industrial Europe, it's, it's like a recipe for how to have an economy that doesn't grow. Today, my conversation with Philip Dayleader is going to focus on what life was like for the average peasant living in central France in the 12th and 13th century. And there's this point that that I was trying to understand a little bit better. When it, whenever you read anything about economic history, and I've been reading a lot of economic history lately, there's 
this huge gulf between our world and the pre-modern world or pre-industrial world. And some people put that the breakout year is 1820. Others say it's closer to like 1910. But but basically there's some gulf and life before it, like from the dawn of humankind until let's just say 1910, life is in what some people call this Malthusian trap. There's this quote that life was nasty, brutish, and short for almost everyone who ever lived. Very limited caloric intake, short lives, lives of drudgery where the vast majority of people spent the vast majority of their time just growing enough meager food, but there were still famines every decade or twice a decade and just vicious diseases. So I asked Philip Dayleader to describe life at one particular point in that Malthusian trap to tell me about the average peasant's material conditions. So he said, let's let's take a trip to 12th century Burgundy. Your house was remarkably flimsy. Uh, if you wanted to see if your neighbor was in, in his or her house, you would lift up the roof uh, and look in. Wait, uh, what do you mean? The, the roof was so... Uh, the roof was so lightweight and it was not tied down that you could just push the roof up and then look into the house and then lower the, lower the roof. Is uh, it made so of thatch? It, yes, it'll be made of thatch. It's very it's lightweight, but it, is, uh, it, it was one way of, of peeking in on your... On, on your neighbors. Is this uh, where the, Raise the Roof comes from? It's, uh, I do not know <laughs> whether that's where that expression comes from. In terms of material life, I think what what strikes me most is it's it's difficult to, to imagine what the demographic fragility of life was in the 12th and 13th centuries. I mean, a half of all human beings born died by the age of 12. You know, you'd lose a quarter of them before the age of one. You'd lose a, another quarter of all those that were born before they, they reached adolescence. And it was just a, a, a phenomenal, a phenomenal cap on population growth. Population is growing in the 12th and 13th centuries, but even in the best of times, you know, life expectancy in a place as, as bounteous as central France is not going to get above 30, uh, maybe up to to 35 if you were very fortunate. And even today, in, in in the most destitute parts of the world, life expectancy is going to be at least 45 and up to to 50. So. The, the wealthiest and I picture of, Burgundy is yeah it, it's it, pretty nice climate, area yeah good climate yes. good fertile soil agricultural fertility nonetheless the uh, the 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 likelihood of famine and of disease was such that uh, that life expectancy is 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 quite limited and it's uh you know the the in terms of family life it was uh it was difficult. To, to have to expect half of your your children were going to die um, before they reached the the age of adolescence, so it was uh, it, it, there was a, a hard edge to life um, that was caused by this rather grim demographic situation. And this is in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries. Well, when you have bubonic plague in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries, it's even much it's much worse than it was uh, than in the period we're talking about here. And that's another factor of life before the industrial revolution that I find very interesting. Your life may be better than your grandparents' life, and it may be measurably worse. It's it seems right. kind of random when I see life expectancy or available calories or living standards. Mm-hmm. The charts it's just up and down, up and down. It never gets very high. Um, but but my life, it, it it I guess is it dependent on weather, on war? What is it dependent on? It's ultimately dependent on epidemiology. Europe. 
paid a price for its economic growth in the 12th and 13th centuries as it becomes more in contact with Asia, with, with sub-Saharan Africa, uh, via Arab, Arab middlemen, you're not just getting the silks and the peppers. You're also getting the diseases that were, that were native to different parts of, of the world. And when bubonic plague comes in the 14th and, and 15th centuries, it's just one of many times uh, throughout the, the Middle Ages that, that Europeans encounter diseases such as smallpox for the first time or measles for the, for the first time. And, and they will lose 10, 15, 20 percent of, of the population uh, whenever, whenever this happens. We recently did a story about all the many ways that um, the world's poorest citizens today can mm-hmm. can save money and, and make their sort of occasional uh, ability to make an income mm-hmm. last a little bit longer. They can stretch it out. There's savings clubs. There's you know money lenders. There's there's all sorts of things that seem to exist throughout Africa and India and, and right. all over the poorest parts of the world. Does that exist? I mean, how, how does a peasant in the 12th and 13th century amass wealth or amass a buffer for bad times? For the most part, they don't. And the, part of the problem is agricultural productivity is so low that you rarely have more than a, a year or two's buffer uh, to, to preserve you against famine. I mean, a typical wheat yield would probably be three to one, meaning for every grain you plant, you get three back if it's a good year. That means a third of all that you produce has to go back into the land every year. If you if your crops fail two years in a row, you've lost your buffer entirely, and and the and the result will be will be famine. And in terms of, of food preservation, there was simply nothing that that people could do. Uh, to protect themselves. Now, I know certainly by the Renaissance, there's at least in Italy and um, some parts of the Mediterranean Europe world, there there are families really amassing, you know, what even to this day is seen as impressive wealth. I mean, when we yes. when when you go sightseeing in Italy, you're basically seeing the amassed wealth of um, late medieval, right, early re- mm-hmm. Renaissance um, wealthy families. In the 12th and 13th century, does that exist? Are are, are there at least is there a, a small elite that is amassing what we would see as wealth? Yes, there are. And, and the 12th and 13th centuries are the period when you start to, to see this. And it, it's especially an Italian phenomenon. I mean, Italy is the economic motor uh, that is driving the rest of Europe. And it is doing so because it's the gateway to the rest of the world. It's located in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's a, it's a peninsula. And Italian merchants are connecting Europe to to the Near East, via the Near East, all the way to, to China and Asia, connecting Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa as well. And Italian families such as the Bardi and the Peruzzi in the 13th centuries, the de' Medici's in the, in the 14th and 15th centuries, uh, constitute the, the super wealthy uh, merchant elite of Europe. So what do we learn about our life today by looking at at lives in the past. I mean, it, it seems to me that one huge lesson that I think I was not fully appreciative of is, you know, I, th- I think when when I thought about the Industrial Revolution, I thought, oh, we used to live outdoors and live in the fields mm-hmm. and suddenly it became smoggy and coal and consumption and death and right. child labor and all these ugly things. But But it seems pretty clear that post-industrial life, at least in Europe and, and the developed world, is just 
in every possible way much, much better. Is, is that a clear, unambiguous lesson? No, I wouldn't go quite that far, uh, if only because, well, for the first few generations after the Industrial Revolution, I mean, given the choice of 13th century Burgundy or 19th century Manchester, I would take 13th century Burgundy, to be honest, because the, you know, the, the industrial cities like Birmingham and, and Manchester uh, were very tough places to live and in some ways tougher than, uh, than I think you would have found in, in uh, say, a village in medieval France. So the lessons that, that I take away, one, don't expect unlimited future growth, that we've lived in a period of, of phenomenal demographic growth for the last 200 years. In the Middle Ages, it was the exception rather than the rule for the number of people to go up, that more often than not, they would go up for a while, then it would get knocked down quite drastically, and, and that during the last 200 years, we haven't seen those sorts of fluctuations, but for the previous 1,500 years, fluctuation was the rule, and that we should probably expect that to happen again sometime. The other, the other lesson that, that I take away is we tend to think of free market economics, sort of untrammeled pursuit of, of wealth and trying to to limit governmental societal restraints on, on the pursuit of wealth as, um, as conservative. And when you look at the last 2,000 years, nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, Adam Smith was a revolutionary figure, and, and that sort of classical economic liberalism flew in the face of the last 1,500 years. It was contrary to everything that people in the Middle Ages held dear. And it's a, it's a radical experiment. It's a radical experiment that's been going on for, for two centuries now and that it is it, – we need to remember that it really is not an old order. It is a challenge to the old order and it, even though it's been going on for two centuries, it remains a challenge to, a, to an old order. And like all experiments, you can't really know how it's going to turn out until it's over because history is not any guide because nobody tried this before. We're the first ones. Day Leader may say that 13th century Burgundy is, in fact, better than 19th century Manchester. But but he said that if it's a choice between living today in any modern country or living in 13th century Burgundy, he would definitely choose today. Actually, because he's a historian, I asked him if he would want to just go back for a couple weeks and check out. 13th century Burgundy. He said he wouldn't even want to go for a couple weeks. No. Because <laughs> he said it would just be so brutal, so violent, so much disease and death. He, he, he doesn't think it would be pleasant at all for, for our modern sensibilities. So when I was talking earlier, is, is the turning point 1820 or is it 1890 or 1910? You know, day leader is more like a 1910 kind of uh-huh. guy. Um, he said that when you think about the poorest people in our society, in the U.S., um, you know, someone living on public assistance, say, uh, in, in, in a housing project. If you look at how many calories they take in, the variety of food they have, their life expectancy, their, abil- their health, their general health and well-being, they are far superior to the richest, wealthiest person of 13th century Europe. Yeah, I always find that amazing. So, But what about like uh, people living in poverty in places like sub-Saharan Africa? Is their life... More similar to the 12th and 13th century than, you know, my life and your life? Dalier says it's a it's I asked him that exact question. He said it's hard to make that comparison because everyone on Earth 
their day, their livelihood is dependent on what happens in other countries, in other continents, in other parts of the world. That that, that to some degree or other, their, their economic and material conditions are connected. And he says, you know, in in 13th century Europe, for the vast majority of people, your life depended on your village. You might, you probably have never been to the next village over, or certainly not two villages over. And your economy really wasn't a regional or national economy. Although I think when you look at, I was looking at Hans Rosling, the, this guy who's always on TED. He has those awesome videos and, and explanations of, of how poor people live. Um, and it does seem pretty similar that when you look at people in, say, sub-Saharan Africa living on a dollar a day, you know, you can lift the roof and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the caloric intake and those other measures are pretty close. Um, just quickly, something else Day Leader said is that now there's virtually no one on earth who doesn't know they're poor if they're poor. Mm. Whereas in the 12th or 13th century, you, you, that was just how life was. You might know about a wealthy merchant or you might know that the knight is living a better life than yours, but everyone they were dealing with was on their level. They had no sense that it was a lower level and they didn't have any expectations that their life would or should be better. Whereas now you completely know if you're poor. He said that, yeah, 40 years ago maybe you could find people in some parts of the world who didn't know that they were poor by world standards. But now there's basically nobody alive who doesn't know that they are poor by world standards. Right. That's what I always think about that in New York, that I always think it must be possible to live on a small amount of money in New York, but you have the wealth like right up in front of you everywhere. Yeah. And, and apparently, I mean, there's serious studies that show that – just knowing where you fit makes you less happy, that people at the same material condition are happier if they don't know that their material condition is poorer than other people's material condition. Wow. Okay, so on um, that uplifting note, is this the end of our podcast here? I think this is it, Hannah. Okay. I think our careful listeners can know we're, we're not very happy about the end of this economic crisis. We just want to keep bringing <laughs> sad, miserable news. So you can check us out on npr.org slash money. We have depressing and happy things. And we have cool charts of collapsing world trade um, from our friends over at High Frequency Economics. That's npr.org slash money. And keep sending us your letters, comments, and questions to planetmoney at npr.org. We are working on a bunch of stories about health care, and we'd love to get some thoughts on what questions you have. Uh, I'm Adam Davidson. Yes, you are, and I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thank you for listening. 